With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's the Riley and Kimmy Show. The Riley and Kimmy Show. The Riley and Kimmy Show. Toys, movies, comics, and so much more. The Riley and Kimmy Show. And the more that you listen, the more that you know. The Riley and Kimmy Show. Thank you for choosing this special spotlight on the golden age of radio. I'm Patrick Riley, host of The Riley and Kimmy Show. Our featured golden age of radio production will be uninterrupted for your listening pleasure. After this tribute, please visit our website, RileyandKimmy.com, for our archived daily episodes. Our episodes focus on the world of old-time radio, nostalgia, and pop culture trivia. That's RileyandKimmy.com. Lobby? It's for you, ladies and gentlemen, it's for you. Hobby Lobby, conducted by the Dean of Hobbyists, the originator of Hobby Lobby, Dave Elton. Thank you, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Hobby Lobby. Well, we have many exciting guests on Hobby Lobby tonight. And you're going to meet the first one, Arthur Williamson, just as soon as we hear a short message from our sponsor. Youngstown, Ohio, gives us our first hobbyist tonight. He is Arthur Williamson, formerly a piano salesman. Mr. Williamson, what's your hobby? Music. Well, no, there's nothing unusual about music as a hobby. But, Dave, I play the piano. Well, no, that's not unusual either. Oh, yes, it is. Unusual for a man to play the piano? How? Why? Eight years ago, I was the foreman of a crew of men who trimmed trees for telephone and electric wires. In my spare time, I studied music. But you're bound to get that music in, aren't you? There's a reason. One night after delivering a payroll to Pittsburgh, I started back in my car. You were alone? Yes. I hadn't driven more than ten miles out of Pittsburgh when a car flagged me down. The two men in the car that stopped me took my money, clothing, car, and left me on the highway to die. It was 22 degrees below zero. Oh, no. Couldn't you call for help? Well, it was 2 o'clock in the morning, and besides, I was unconscious. Six hours later, I'm told that I stumbled into a farmhouse, and they thought I was drunk. They directed me to a foundry a thousand yards away. Well, what did you do? I started for the foundry, but fell in my tracks. The farm folk, at least, realizing the fix I was in, took me in their home. Well, that's a very interesting story, Mr. Williamson. But what has that to do with music being your hobby? Everything. I was frozen so badly my fingers and toes had to be amputated. And when I was coming out of the anesthetic, I overheard my mother and the doctor talking. 
The doctor told her I'd be able to do everything I did before except play the piano. I love music, and I hated to hear those words. And so as soon as my health permitted it, I took up my hobby, piano playing. You took up piano playing without fingers? Yes. So far as I know, I'm the world's only fingerless piano. Well, now, before we hear you play a fingerless piano solo, what do you intend doing with your hobby, Arthur? I'd like to turn my hobby into my profession. Well, here's hoping that tonight's broadcast will help you do it. And now, let's hear one of your fingerless piano solos. building here at Radio City, there's one of the most unusual collections to be found in this country. The owner of it is Louis Azenstein, importer and cutter of diamonds of the firm of Azenstein, Warnock & Sons, Incorporated. Tell me, Lou, what is your hobby? I collect antique watches. Yes, and right here in this studio, this very minute, is your entire collection of antique watches valued at $100,000 and here under armed guard. Lou, a couple of weeks ago, Walter Nelson was on Hobby Lobby, and he spent an imaginary hundred years trying to sell me a bicycle, and I wasn't a very good customer either. And he, see if you can spend an imaginary hundred years selling me a watch. A hundred years? The first port of a watch was made over 425 years ago, about 1510. That was about 20 years after Columbus discovered America. Yes. Well, all right, I'll be the customer, and you'll be the watch salesman 425 years ago. All right. Now, I'm coming into your store. If it's 425 years ago, I haven't a store. I'm the village blacksmith. <laughs> oh, I don't want to shoe a horse. I want to buy a watch. Well, the place watchmakers or blacksmiths or locksmiths. So come into my blacksmith shop and let's start. All right. Good morning, Mr. Blacksmith. I'd like to buy a watch. I don't want to delve into your personal affairs, sir, but are you a member of royalty or an extremely wealthy man? What difference does that make? Well, unless you are, you can't afford to buy one. All portable timekeepers are made on order, and they're very expensive. Oh. Well, uh, what's your cheapest? 
I can make one in an iron or silver case for four or five hundred dollars. It'll be ready for you in three years. <laughs> All right, it's three years later and I'm back. Is my watch ready? Here it is. It weighs two pounds. Hmm. Oh, that looks very, very nice. That's about the size of an ostrich egg. Does it keep good time? Excellent. It's within two hours of being right every minute. Colossal. <laughs> All right. Now the scene has changed. It's a few hundred years later. Instead of 1510, it's 1780. Uh, watches have improved considerably by this time, haven't they? Yes. Instead of only one hand, like the watches used to have, this one has three. My. Three? A watch only needs one. Anybody knows that. The hour hand. Yes, but I thought you'd like something fancy, so I put a minute hand on it. Oh, yeah. Well, I can see where that might help. Uh, what's the third hand for? That one sticking up at the top? That's a calendar hand. Tells you what day of the month it is. Is that a fact? Yes, and it's a repeater, too. A repeater? Well, what do you mean by repeater? Well, suppose it's nighttime, and you want to know what time it is. With this one, you can tell time at night without lighting candles. How's that? You press this little knob, and whatever time it is, the watch rings out the hour for you. Listen. One, two, three, four, five... Six, seven, eight, one quarter, two quarters. Hmm, about half past eight. <laughs> well, listen, uh, Lou, coming out of your shop and back to reality, to that watch that just struck off the hour and the half hour, when was it made? About 1750, and it works as well today as the day it was made. Well, thank you, Mr. Eisenstein, for lobbying for a hobby that takes up 425 years of time. B. McLaughlin is an instructor in economics at the Ashland Senior High School in Ashland, Kentucky. He had to wait for Christmas vacation to accept our invitation to lobby for his hobby. Mr. McLaughlin, what is your hobby? Collecting odd and unusual facts. <clears throat> for example, did you ever hear of a pig that thought he was a dog? A pig that thought he was a dog? Well, is there such an animal? Yes, down in Henderson, Kentucky. You see, the pig was raised with seven Eskimo Spitz pups and the pups and the pig regard themselves as brothers and sisters. Recently, when the pig was taken out of the dog kennel and placed with other pigs, he turned his nose up and refused to eat. He was taken back to the kennel, and he's been leading a dog's life ever since. <laughs> and you'll vouch for the authenticity of every odd fact you tell about tonight. Yes, I can give my source of information on every statement made. And these sources are not cartoons or newspaper columns. Well, how about some more odd facts, then? The Indians who sold Manhattan Island to Peter Minuet for some firewater and $24 worth of trinkets were smart boys. Smart boys? Well, how do you make that out? They didn't own it. <laughs> <laughs> they were the Canarses and Montauks and Rockaway tribes from Long Island, just in town for a visit. Yeah. So Peter Minuet had to buy it again from another tribe uptown. But nobody ever hears about that second purchase. Yes, history does sort of glide over that. Mr. Elman, did you ever hear of the island of Muscongus? The island of Muscongus? Where is it? It's a small island off the coast of Maine, and until recently it remained an independent republic. Though in our territorial waters, it was discovered in 1860 that Muscongus had not been included when the coast of Maine was mapped. So what happened? The population, 120, had their own town meeting form of government. 
However, in 1935, it was found necessary to have a post office, since it had become dangerous for the man who was the barber, storekeeper, postman to row to the mainland for mail, so the inhabitants swore allegiance to the United States and the strange Republic of Miscongress passed out of existence. Mr. McLaughlin, give us the most puzzling fact in your entire collection. A Russian arrested in Moravia was placed before a camera for police photos, but every plate exposed was a blank. The prisoner offered to exchange the secret of his invisibility for freedom, but the offer was rejected, and the secret has never been disclosed. That is amazing. Well, what's your favorite fact? A milk thief in East Orange, New Jersey, wasn't satisfied with the amount of milk he was able to steal off doorsteps, so he decided to do something about it. Well, what can you do in a case like that? This thief left notes in empty bottles, doubling the milk order for the neighborhood. Thank you, John B. McLaughlin. I'd like to introduce Mr. I.S. Seidman, a photographer of New York City. Mr. Seidman, what is your hobby? I collect old almanacs. Well, Mr. Seidman, the daily life of our forefathers was guided by the information contained in your old almanacs. Tell us about these old museum pieces which are on display here tonight, won't you? Well, one of the most famous was Richard, Poor Richard's Almanac, published by Benjamin Franklin. In addition to the days of the year, it contained a weather forecast for each day. You know, Mr. Elman, those weather predictions of the early almanac makers often produce strange results. Oh, how do you mean? An almanac publisher up in New England was very busy one day when his office boy called in and said, Mr. Thomas, you've left out the weather prediction for July 13th. What'll I put in? And the boss yelled, Get out of here. Can't you see I'm busy? Put in anything. When the almanac came out, opposite July 13th appeared the following weather prediction. Rain, hail, and snow. <laughs> what did the boss do? He went into a rage. But on July 13th, according to the record, it actually did rain, hail, and snow. The next year, his almanac outsold all his competitors. Well, well, when did the comic almanacs come in? Along about 1820. Up to 1834, this was the funniest joke I can find in any of them. And this was considered hilarious humor in the old days. What does a liar do after he is dead? He lies still. <laughs> oh, and that's the best joke in the book. What came next? Almanacs began to print home remedies for curing what ails you. Listen to this supposed toothache cure from an almanac of 1870. A friend informed us that a roasted onion tied around the wrist will stop the worst toothache in a very few minutes. We're trying. Well, I hope nobody listening to this program ever tries that. Mr. Seidman, what is the one fact that stands out in your entire collection of old almanacs? Just this, that when an old year ends, a brand new one comes along, giving everyone another chance. Thank you, Mr. Seidman. By the way, here's an important message from our sponsor. I'd like to have you meet a remarkable man. His name is Fred Rossi, and he lives in Philadelphia. Mr. Rossi is 41 years old, the father of 10 children, and he's worked hard all his life to support his ever-increasing family. His home is a veritable hobbyist paradise. Almost everything in his home is due to his many hobbies. 
Fred, how old were you when you started to work? Nine years old. And how old were you when you became a master tailor? Sixteen. Is that what you do today? No, I'm a woodworker by trade today. Well, starting to work at such an early age, you didn't get much chance for a technical education, did you? No, I didn't. Not even a grammar school no. education? No, I didn't. Well, now, without a grammar school education or education of any sort, tell us what you do for a hobby. Well, I have built a small village, a miniature village, for the children to come in and see. Tell us some of the things that are in that village. Well, I have men working on roads, men building homes, men working in coal mines, and trains going through tunnels, and automobiles going on the road. Well, what did you make the village out of? All out of scrap. You didn't buy a thing? Didn't buy a thing. How many people come to see it? Well, from five to 6,000 people. In a year. In one year. Well, now, getting away from the miniature village, tell us what you've made out of uh, uh, boiled matches glued together. Well, I have made a stagecoach out of boiled matches. And here's the strong display. Um... <laughs> How many matches... How many matches are in this miniature stagecoach, which our audience just... Applauded so spontaneously. 8,140 matches. Imagine that. You made something else out of bo boiled matches, too, haven't you? I have made the Santa Maria, the ship that Christopher Columbus has come across, out of boiled matches. And all made of matches. How many? 29,800 matches. You know, the work of Fred Rossi seems almost phenomenal. Working without education, without using the usual materials, without measurements of any kind, Working absolutely freehand, as it were, he has succeeded in building a scale model of the Santa Maria that is correct in every particular. Even the sails, ropes, pulleys, flags, and everything on the boat are made of boiled matches glued together. Mr. Rossi, working and taking care of ten children as you do, when do you find time for your hobby? There is always time for a hobby. Thank you, Fred Rossi. Her name is Mrs. Anna Rosengarten of the Bronx, New York. Mrs. Rosengarten, tell us why you wanted to come on. After I heard them announce last week that you were the proud papa of a new baby boy, I thought it would be a good time to tell about my hobby. Well, all right, here it goes. Mrs. Rosengarten, what is your hobby? I collect baby carriages. <laughs> well, I just collected one this week myself. But I collect old baby carriages. Well, ours is brand new, and it's a beauty. But how would our new carriage differ from the old carriages in your collection? Well, Alan Kent is wheeling on stage this minute the oldest baby carriage in America. It dates back to 1848. Hmm, that is different. This one only has two wheels and a supporting rod and had to be pulled instead of pushed. In fact, it almost resembles a covered wagon. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Well, speaking for my son, those old-time baby carriages in your collection don't look very comfortable, do they? No, they were handmade and didn't have any springs. In fact, you can tell him for me that they had the riding comfort of a wheelbarrow. <laughs> Mrs. Rosengarten, what's the smallest baby carriage in your collection? You could hardly call it a perambulator, but it's the basket that an Indian mother used to carry her papoose. No, my wife wouldn't be interested in that. <laughs> well, here's one I designed myself. It's a six-passenger job. 
I'm going to give it to the first woman in the United States who gives birth to sex toppers. I don't think I'd be interested in that, Mrs. Rosengarten. <laughs> Tell us, what have you done with your hobby? Well, my hobby brought me a husband. A husband? I walked into a baby carriage store one day to ask the owner a question about an old-time baby carriage. And before I knew it, I'd added him to my collection. What else? I'm the editor of two publications devoted to baby buggies. One is The Carriage Crier, and the other is Ye Buggy News. Well, thank you, Mrs. Rosengarten, for lobbying for your hobby, your hobby, and my new hobby, Howard Lawrence Elmer. Our next hobby is Alonzo C. Hall, professor of English at the Women's College of the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, North Carolina. Professor, will you tell us what your hobby is? Mr. Elvin, my hobby is collecting curious and humorous epitaphs. Well, will you read us some of these curious and humorous epitaphs that you have found? And gladly, here's one of them. Here lies the body of Mary Browder. She burst while drinking said lips powder. Call from this world to a heavenly rest. She should have waited till it effervesced. <laughs> Are all these epitaphs in existence on tombstones today? Yes, every one that I'm reading tonight. I've seen them personally, only the names have changed. Here's one that always amuses me. Here lies Mary Jones, wife of Thomas Jones, marble cutter. This monument was erected by her husband as a tribute to her memory and a specimen of his work. Monuments of this same style are two hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> well, now there was an enterprising gentleman. You'd be surprised at all the advertisements that have been put on tombstones. Listen to this one: "Sacred to the memory of Thomas McCall, who died August eighteenth, eighteen hundred. His widow, aged twenty-four, lives at twenty-five Elm Street. Has every qualification for a good wife and yearns to be comforted." <laughs> Read that one you have about the dentist. Stranger approached this spot with gravity. This dentist is filling his last cavity. <laughs> Some more examples, Professor. Beneath these stones do lie, back to back, my wife and I. When the last trumpet the air shall fill, if she gets up, I'll just lie still. <laughs> and now, Professor Hall, read us your favorite. I don't know that I have a favorite, but here's one that's Pretty close to me. It's dedicated to me, and for one of my students wrote it. It reads, Epitaph to Professor A.C. Hall. Here lies the body of A.C. Hall. He weren't so fat, but he sure was tall. He tried his best to shock his classes, and now he lies in the tall, tall grasses. He hatched up tests too hard to master. Wave o'er his head, ragweed and aster. His conscience pricked him deep and sharp. And now he twangs a golden heart. <laughs> Thank you, Alonzo C. Hall. Well, seems to me it's about time to hear from our announcer. Well, here's Dave Elman with another of this evening's hobbyists. Mrs. Bessie Edgecombe lives on a farm near Utica, Illinois, about 90 miles from Chicago. Her hobby is one which she can indulge to her heart's content every day. Mrs. Edgecombe, what is your hobby? Husband and hog calling. Well, what is the difference between calling a hog and calling a husband? There is no difference. 
You use the same call for both hogs and husbands? Yes, but when you call a husband, you use his name. Oh, I see. But suppose the pigs don't know the husband's name and they hear the call. What happens? And they all come running. <laughs> well, Mrs. Edgecombe, you've won several hog and husband calling contests at the fairs held in your vicinity. Will you tell us how these contests are conducted? The men get up on a platform and each has a turn calling hogs. Then when they're all through calling, the official asks, are there any women hog callers present? That's when the women get their chance. I see. You just get up on the platform and make your call. That's the idea. Well, who makes the best hog callers, the men or the women? You mean uh, which can be heard the furthest and longest? Yes. The women, of course. <laughs> well, do the men and women ever compete against each other? Not to my knowledge. At least they didn't in the contest I was in. I guess the men are afraid to compete. Afraid? Why? Well, you know, a woman always gets in the last word. So if they hollered louder, we'd holler longer. <laughs> Mrs. Edgecombe, consider the hog calling all through. And now comes the husband calling. What do you call your husband? You mean in a contest? <laughs> yes, let's stick to contest. Yes, I'd rather too. I call him by his name. Oh, and then does he come? It all depends on the tone of my voice. Well, now suppose you're in good form. How far away can your calls be heard? Oh, about a quarter of a mile. A quarter of a mile? Well, tonight, Mrs. Edgecombe, they're going to be heard across the nation. Alan, will you step up here and become a county fair official for a few moments? Mrs. Edgecombe, since this is going coast to coast, we'll have to add an extra rule tonight. Just call your own husband. Well, all right. <laughs> calling all hogs and calling all husbands. Our next contestant is Mrs. Bessie Edgecombe from Utica, Illinois. Uh, wait, Miss Miss Edgecombe, until we get the microphone turned down so that you don't knock us off the air. Okay, <laughs> everything's set now. Call your hogs first. time to a hobby closely aligned with his occupation, and yet separate and distinct from it. Mr. Wilson, what is your hobby? I collect worthless gadgets. Now, what do you mean by the expression worthless gadgets? Gadgets that have been sold to a gullible public under the pretext that they are good for something, when in reality, they are good for nothing. You mean when measured by the standards of the Better Business Bureau? That's it exactly. You've gone to the dentist, haven't you, and had him take an impression of your teeth? Yes. It's a standard practice. And a very worthwhile one. Why? Well, here's a gadget that was sold with the understanding that you could be your own dentist and fit yourself with false teeth. Well, that looks like a piece of wax that dentists use. But it isn't. It's entirely dissimilar. You're supposed to heat it, place it in your mouth, and then bite on it, thereby taking an impression of your own teeth. Well, does it work? This will give you an idea. In one case, the victim left the compound in his mouth too long, and it hardened. His few remaining teeth set in it. 
and he couldn't open his mouth. Well, what did he do? The emergency wagon of the fire department had to be called in to help him pry his jaws apart. <laughs> well, what's that gadget over there that looks like a horse collar? This is an electrical contraption that is guaranteed to cure anything that ails you. I found that it costs about $5 to make and sold, in some instances, for $65. How did it work? It didn't. It was about as effective as if you leaned against an electric refrigerator. Well, mention some other gadgets in your collection. Here's one for raising hair. Well, well that one looks like a skull cap. <laughs> That's what it is. With an electric resistance wire which generates heat when you plug it in. Well, how does it operate? You're supposed to wear it as long as you can stand the heat. And does that raise your hair? No, Dave. But if you knew how much money was raised on this device, it would raise your hair. <laughs> Probably opened my eyes, too, eh? Talking about eyes. Here is a device by means of which you test your own eyes and order your glasses by mail. <laughs> the authorities stepped in on this one several times, but the fraud still continues. Well, doesn't this one work? If there's anything wrong with your eyes, this won't show it. You put it up to your eyes, look through it, and when you see through it clearly, you order the lens indicated on the scale. Well, what happens when you get your glasses? You can't see through the glasses, but you can see that you've been fooled. I see. <laughs> what is the purpose of your hobby, Mr. Wilson? Dave, I'd like to feel that through my hobby, I have been able to save thousands of people from being victimized by the men who run with your money. Thank you, Mr. Wilson. Remember, when the telephone bell rings in your house next week, Hobby Lobby will be on the air. This is Dave Ellman signing his name to another session of Hobby Lobby. Hello? Who? Hobby Lobby? It's for you, ladies and gentlemen. It's for you. Hobby Lobby, conducted by the Dean of Hobbyists, the originator of Hobby Lobby, Dave Ellman. Ted Brown, and greetings, friends. Welcome to Hobby Lobby. Tell me, did you ever hear of frying an egg on a cake of ice? Did you ever hear of running a steam engine with coals instead of heat? Did you ever hear of anyone using cranberries as ammunition in a gun? You will today, for on this program of Hobby Lobby, you are going to meet a woman who has made a hobby of the study of cold instead of hot. You are going to meet a man whose hobby is goats. And you're going to hear some strange American Indian songs that have come down through the ages. And you're also going to meet a man who collects paper, but not in the usual way. These are just a few of the people who have come to lobby for their hobbies on Hobby Lobby. First, a word from our announcer, and then on with the show. Almost every family gets together from time to time for a family conference. You know the sort of thing where the members of the family exchange ideas... You may remember that last spring we had such a conference and we asked our WOR family to tell us what they thought about WOR. Well, now we'd like to take stock again. We want to have you tell us what you like and don't like about WOR's programs and services. We want to know if there is some personality you'd enjoy hearing more of, a particular show that really thrilled you, or something different about WOR that especially pleases you, and why. Now, we can't get the whole WOR family together in one place for this conference, because there are about 35 million of you, so how about telling us what you think in a letter? We'll take over from there, just as we did last spring on so many of the helpful suggestions you made. 
Yes, we think it's time for another family get-together. And we'd appreciate it if you'd take a few minutes and write us a letter about, well, about us here at WOR. Write to WOR, New York 18, Suggestions. Our first hobbyist comes from Elizabeth, New Jersey. Her name is Blanche Palmer. She has one of the most dangerous hobbies in the world, and we believe she's the only woman in the world following this hobby. Miss Palmer, what is your hobby? My hobby is experimenting with liquid air. Will you come over here to the microphone, please? Come over here to the microphone, Miss Palmer, and tell us, what is your hobby? My hobby is experimenting with liquid air. And what is liquid air? Many people in our audience have probably never heard of it, don't know what it is. In fact, I'm not sure that I do. Tell us, what is liquid air? It's the same kind of air that we are breathing right now, but it has been put under such high pressure that it changes its form and becomes liquid. And what does the liquid look like? Exactly like water. It weighs the same, acts the same, and looks the same, but it isn't. In its liquid form, is it hot or cold? Cold. 365 degrees below zero. And that is some cold. Miss Palmer, how much air is there in this little pint vacuum container? Do you happen to know? There is as much air in this tiny little container as there is in the entire studio. Think of that. As much air in that little bottle as there is in this whole big theater. And you have some of that cool stuff right there? Oh, yes, but it isn't a bottle. A bottle wouldn't hold it, Dave. It's a special vacuum container, chemically treated, that I've made, especially for the use of holding liquid air. Well, Miss Palmer, what kind of experiments do you do with liquid air? Here's one of them, Dave. Yes? I have some cranberries in this little, ordinary cranberries in this little glass. I'm going to shake them. They're practically noiseless, but maybe you can hear them over the air. Now I'm going to pour some liquid into them. That hissing sound you hear is the liquid air being poured onto the cranberries. Now, after treating these cranberries with liquid air for just a few seconds, now listen to them. Frozen hard as marble in just a few seconds. They're frozen so hard that I can actually use these cranberries for ammunition in a gun. Well, uh, Miss Palmer, what else can you do with liquid air? Here's a little steam engine. And steam has to be over 212 degrees Fahrenheit to run this engine. Now I'm going to try running the engine with the liquid air 365 degrees below zero. Well, she takes up the vacuum can of the liquid air and starts pouring the liquid air into the steam engine, a compartment that would ordinarily hold the water. And now she puts a cork over it, and now there's the engine running on cold instead of heat. And now, it's all right. Just turn, can't turn it off, huh? Okay. Oh, very well. It's Take the time. That's right. And some of that liquid air went all over us. Well, now, just a couple more questions, Miss Palmer. How long have you been working at your hobby? Since 1916. Well, is liquid air injurious? Oh, yes. Liquid air is so cold that it can give you a third-degree burn in less time than it takes to tell it. Wait a minute. Did you say a third-degree burn? Oh, yes. I can fry eggs with liquid air, Dave. Would you like to see me do it? You can fry eggs with liquid air? I certainly can. And well, now, let's see how you fry eggs with liquid air. All right. Friends... She has a frying pan, a skillet in one hand, an egg in the other. Now, she takes the can of liquid air 
Now she breaks the egg right over it. I think we better come over here so that we can have the sound. The now the liquid air is being poured right in to the skillet of ice. Remember, the skillet is on a cake of ice. Listen to it sizzle. It is being frozen with cold instead of heat. And now we'll have a three-minute egg in about 30 seconds, I think. And there it is. There you are. I noticed that you have some grapes there. What do you do with the grapes? Well, this is an experiment in sound, Dave. I place two grapes on the end of these prongs. And so same she does. She's taken off two grapes from the bunch. Now she puts a grape on each end of the prong. And now what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to sound off on the uh, chimes, and I think you'll find that they are absolutely noiseless. They're almost noiseless. That's right. And now I'm going to take two grapes, place them in my container of liquid air, and in just a moment, she is taking the grapes... And now she's pouring liquid air over the grapes. You should be able to hear the sizzle of the liquid air onto the grapes. It takes a little while longer, I understand, oh, yes, to freeze grapes than it does cranberries. But in just a little while now, she's already used up one container of liquid air. She's now she's on the second one, which means she's already used twice the amount of air that we have in this entire theater. You're quite and right. now, as the grapes freeze, they're on the ends of the prongs, remember that, and I believe they're almost frozen. Are they're they frozen? Ready. Yes, they're ready, Dave. All right, now let's hear them on the time. Miss <laughs> Palmer, tell us, what is the most sensational experiment you've been able to perform with liquid air? Well, Mr. Elman, for a long time, scientists have been working on a theory of suspended animation. Some of them believe that in time they will be able to freeze a man instantly and bring him back to life a thousand years later. Well, do you think there's anything to that theory? Well, I don't know. But I do know that I can take a goldfish out of the water, freeze it solid with liquid air, in other words, suspend the life of the fish, and then bring it back to life completely unharmed in any way. You mean you could do that here and now if we gave you enough time? Yes, Mr. Elman, I can. Well, we're going to take the time to have you do this demonstration thoroughly. Freeze the fish solidly, and then bring it back to life. Friends, I believe that this is the first time on the air that such a demonstration has ever been attempted. Uh, Miss Palmer is now reaching for the goldfish uh, with a little net. She has it in the net. Now she has a little skillet, what looks like a tiny skillet, and she puts the goldfish into the skillet. It is now in the skillet. That, of course, makes no sound. A goldfish never did make a sound. Not a hit. And now she's pouring plenty of liquid air over the goldfish. Take plenty of time for this demonstration. Oh, I am. Plenty of time. It takes a few moments longer. To freeze that fish solid, take a little bit more time, please. A little bit more time. That's right. And now we have some more liquid air on it. And now those fish are frozen solid to the bottom of that skillet. And now try to bring them back to life by putting them in the warmer water, which will revive them, we hope. There they are. Thank you, Miss Blanche Palmer.
Our next guest on Hobby Lobby is a young Pawnee Indian, grandson of the famous American Indian Chief White Eagle. His name is Ralph Allen, known to his own people as Lone Bear. Lone Bear, tell us, what is your hobby? Collecting early American Indian songs. Tell us about one, Lone Bear. Well, every Indian brave composes his own special love song for the girl he is serenading. She never forgets that song. After they are married and a little papoose comes along, she changes the words of her serenade and turns it into a lullaby. You mean she hushes all her children to sleep with a love song that was the serenade of her courtship days? Yes, Mr. Elman. Well, what becomes of the original love song? It's forgotten. That's why lullabies live and love songs die. Well, Lone Bear, will you sing an Indian lullaby for us? Yes, Mr. Elman. The mother tells her little boy that someday he will be a brave man like his father and serenade a beautiful Indian maiden with a love song of his own. Now I Friends, you've just heard an Indian lullaby, a truly authentic Indian lullaby, once an Indian serenade. Yes, but the song of the medicine man is more exciting. This song is supposed to drive evil spirits out of a sick man's body. Well, Lone Bear, suppose you give us some big medicine, will you? All right, but I'll leave it to you if after hearing it, a patient ever recovers. Thank you, Lone Bear. Friends, we'll continue with Hobby Lobby after this brief announcement. Have you ever read a newspaper criticism of a show or a radio program and said, Oh boy, what I'd say about that program if I had a chance. Well, we'll be happy to give you the chance to be a critic about some radio program. Frequently, you'll find a group of critical radio listeners in one of our theaters deep in a discussion of the merits and demerits of some radio program. Now, these audience reaction sessions are mighty stimulating, and we'd like to have you join one. Any afternoon, we'd like to join. And bring your friends, too. You can all turn radio critics for the afternoon. Here's how you go about getting to be a critic. Write a note. A penny postcard will do to Audience Reaction, WOR New York 18. Just say that you'd like tickets to one of our afternoon audience reaction sessions. Tell us how many tickets you'd like, and don't be bashful. They're free. Audience Reaction, WOR New York 18, New York. Our guest of honor is Homer Croy. 
the man who wrote more of the late Will Rogers motion picture stories than any other person. Welcome to Hobby Lobby, Homer Cole. <laughs> Homer, Homer, you've written innumerable books. You wrote Sixteen Hands and Country Cure, and I've just heard about your newest movie, Family Honeymoon, starring Claudette Colbert and Fred McMurray, and here's wishing you every good wish for the new picture. And now, Homer, tell us, what is your hobby? Well, it's collecting and using other people's stationery. <laughs> Why do you do it? Well, um, to give my friends a laugh. Is that the only purpose? Well, that's, <clears throat> that's the uh, purpose now, but that wasn't the way it started. Oh, no. Well, let's go back to the beginning then, Homer. Well, when I first came to New York, I was a struggling young writer just like 10,000 other people around town. And things got so bad for me, I couldn't afford writing paper. And I couldn't let the folks back home know how, well, indefinite my address was. Naturally. So what did you do about it? Well, I'd go into the Waldorf Astoria or the Astor Hotel and into the writing room, and I'd get a sheet or two of the hotel's engraved stationery, and then I'd write my letter home on that. And then at the bottom of the letter, at the bottom, I'd put, uh, oh, P.S., temporary address, 22 Bowery, or whatever it was happened to be <laughs> that particular week where I was staying. Also, I needed paper to write my manuscripts on. Yeah, but hotel stationery is usually small. You couldn't use that for manuscripts, could you? Oh, no, I didn't. I used office stationery for that. Well, how'd you get the office stationery? Oh, when I was going around hunting jobs. Well, after you arrived in New York, you finally did succeed in selling a story. What paper did you write that on? The back of business stationery that I'd picked up while I was looking for work. <laughs> well, wasn't it kind of daring to send a story into an editor on that kind of paper? Well, yes, it was in a way, but I found afterward it attracted more attention in the office and the editorial rooms than anything else that I'd done. Well, to be specific about that, I sold a short story to Theodore Dreiser. He was then editor of some women's magazines about his publications. Well, that was one way of turning a liability into an asset, wasn't it? Well, for that reason, I began collecting stationery then and kept it up, and I'm still doing it. It's given my friends, I well, was a million laughs, and I have some friends who even exchange my letters among themselves. Homer, it said that no one can identify a letter from you until the envelope is opened. Is that true? Yes, that's the idea. For instance, the envelope and the return address on the envelope is uh, from a tombstone maker. And then, lo and behold, when you open it up, the letter is written on the stationery from the office of a musical comedy producer. <laughs> What's the most unusual piece of writing paper you ever used? Well, one time I was very anxious to consummate a deal, and I uh, tore the backing off of a porous plaster, a mustard plaster, you know, and wrote it on the backing of this mustard plaster and got my job. <laughs> well, how do you collect your writing paper? Do you do it all yourself? Oh, no, I have friends who sent it in to me from all over the world. I have uh, had the stuff, uh, stationery, sent to me from India, even. Well, by this time, you must be a connoisseur of uh, writing paper. Well, I, I think I am. When I first started out, I just took the easy kinds that anybody get uh, from hotels and steamships and sort of things like that. Then after a while, oh, the uh, wind got in my nostrils, and I began collecting the unusual and the bizarre and the striking well, give me an example of what you consider bizarre writing paper. Well, not long ago, I honored a friend with a letter written on the stationery that came from a Turkish harem. How about some unusual stationery? Well, I gave my friends a, a laugh a while back by writing on the stationery of a bill collector. And now what about the striking stationery? Well, I have a friend sent me some from stationery from Skagway, Alaska. 
It was a boarding house stationery. And the top of it, it read, Soapy Smith Place. And there was the old date line. It said, Skagway, Alaska, 1890. And the last figure was blank to be filled in with whatever it happened to be. When I used it, I dated it, for instance, at 3rd of March, 1898. And then down at the bottom, I, I wrote, uh, Homer Croy, successor to Soapy Smith. Well, Homer, are you still collecting stationery even now? Oh, yes, yes. I work at it every day. You do? You mean you collected some today? I did. Where'd you get some today? I did. Up in your office, Dave, when I was up there. Here it is. (laughs) Hobby Lobby program. Well, thanks. Well, thank you, Homer Croy. Here's hoping that your new movie is a big success, and thank you for lobbying for your hobby. Mr. Adolph Bruner of New York City is a watch salesman. He travels all around New England and during his travels has time for a very interesting hobby. What is your hobby, Mr. Bruner? I collect spoons. Well, with many people, that's a habit, not a hobby. Where do you get your spoons? I search through jeweler scrap heaps for rare and unusual souvenir spoons. You mean when you call on a jeweler to sell him watches, he sells you spoons? Yes. When I went into a jewelry store, I was both a salesman and a prospective customer. Well, Mr. Bruner, how'd you happen to start that hobby? Well, Mr. Elman, did you ever hear of the Iron Maiden of Nuremberg? You mean that famous spike torture chamber, the outside of which looked like a beautiful woman, but the inside was a mass of spikes which would slowly pierce the victim's body as the doors of the torture chamber uh, closed upon him? That's the one. Well, this spoon that started me on my hobby is a relic of the days when men tortured each other. How in the world did you get hold of it? I happened to see a heap of old scrap silver in one of my customers' stores, and I spied a very unusual-looking spoon in these discards. On closer examination, I found that this spoon had tiny doors in the handle, and when I opened those doors, I found a replica of a spiked torture chamber. I was holding in my hands a souvenir representation of that Iron Maiden. What are some other interesting spoons in your collection? What are some other interesting spoons? Here's a delicate little spoon I picked up. When it is held up to the light, the handle resembles a beautiful stained-glass cathedral window. This type of enamel work was originally done at the time of the czars and has since become a lost art. It's a relic of holy Russia when religion was the dominating force. It's a souvenir of days that will never come again. Well, that spoon must be very valuable. It is now, but I bought it from a discard pile for only 20 cents. And here's a spoon that cost me a dollar, and in return, I received a spoon and 50 cents. Wait, Mr. Bruner, I think you'll have to explain that. The top of the handle is a silver seal of the United States. Well, where did the 50 cents come in? A pressed half dollar is the bowl of the spoon. Well, you do find bargains. Mr. Bruner, you have many beautiful and unusual spoons in your collection, but most of them don't seem to be be very practical, as we know spoons. Well, here's one that is. It's a souvenir from Holland. In the bowl of the spoon is a Dutch water scene, and on the handle is a miniature Dutch windmill, and the windmill actually spins around. I would say that this is the most practical in my collection. Well, how is that? Well, the windmill could be cooling your coffee while you were stirring it. Well, thank you, Mr. Adolf Bruner. Anthony Ippolito is an architect from New Jersey. When he isn't at work... He spends his spare time at... Well, what is your hobby, Tony? Collecting spoons. No, no, wait a minute. The hobbyist who just finished talking about it does that. 
But another fellow can have the same hobby, can he? Besides, yes, I have more spoons than he has. Well, how many spoons have you collected? Over 600. Oh, that sounds like the same hobby to me, Tony. But it isn't. I collect my spoons for an entirely different reason. Well, what other reason could a person possibly be... I play tunes on my spoons. You mean you make music on them? Well, opinions differ on that. But my wife and I enjoy it. Well, supposing you serve up a spoon solo, or should I say, ladle out a lullaby. Go ahead, Tony. We're going to bring you a great human interest story after this short announcement. At night, how often have you tiptoed into your child's room to make sure that he's still covered up? And how many times do you find that he's kicked the covers off? Well, you don't mind that, because you don't mind if he's restless. Rather, you're thankful that he's healthy and active. Well, some kids aren't that lucky. Your National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, supported by the March of Dimes, is helping many of these children, regardless of age, color, race, or creed, who can't afford to pay the cost of medical treatment. Your National Foundation is helping them get back on their feet. It needs your help. Yes, it needs your help now through the March of Dimes to continue medical care and therapy for them. You must help these children walk again. Here's what you can do. Send your dimes and dollars to your local March of Dimes headquarters. Fight infantile paralysis. Join the March of Dimes. Don't put it off until tomorrow. Pitch in. Be generous. Help fight polio by giving all you can to the March of Dimes. The mayor of Randolph Township in New Jersey is on our program now. His name is Robert Crowley, and he's here to lobby for his hobby. Bob, what is your hobby? Goats. Goats? Well, how did a man in your position get tangled up with goats? Because of my baby. Your baby? Yes. The youngest of five. When he was born, we couldn't find the proper food for him. He kept losing weight. For six weeks, he cried night and day. A baby specialist tried every type of food. Nothing was any good until our old kindly family doctor in Kansas City, where we were living at that time, suggested goat's milk. He said babies could sometimes keep that down when everything else failed. So I started out on a hunt for goat's milk. I couldn't find a goat anywhere. Finally, I located a preacher on the outskirts of town who owned a few. He let me have some milk, and the baby was saved. He slept well, gained weight, and rewarded us with a smile. Then I was scared sick. What if our supply of goat's milk was cut off? That made me buy a goat. And that was the start of your hobby? Yes, and then I got another goat. And soon we had more milk and goats that we knew, than we knew what to do with. My wife conceived the idea of giving the surplus milk to the kids at the orphanage who needed goat's milk. Soon we were supplying five hospitals and the babies and invalids. First thing we knew, our hobby developed into a real modern goat dairy. Mrs. Crowley's great egg goat milk has done a lot for the children of Kansas City. Well, how many, co- uh, how many goats do you have in all right now? We had 75 last week, but 10 arrived over the weekend, and I called home tonight, and 10 arrived today. <laughs> well, congratulations. I suppose, since that experience with your baby, you regard goat's milk as one of life's essentials. I certainly do. I don't call it a cure-all, Dave. You'll have to consult your doctor about that. But we regard our dairy as a monument to the goat 
that saved our baby's life. Well, thank you, Bob Crowley, for lobbying for your hobby. <laughs> Friends, when I first arrived in New York City many years ago, one of the fir- first people I met was a young man named Fred Hall, and we've been friends ever since. Well, tonight I have the pleasure of inviting Fred to lobby for his hobby. I know that for many years his hobby has been nostalgic tricks at the piano. Fred, how'd you ever get interested in that hobby? Fred, how'd you ever get interested in that hobby? Well, Dave, ever since I was a kid, I always liked the older things. I never went for the popular songs of the day. I always liked the old-timers and that sort of thing, and that's the reason that things like the pianola sort of linger with me. Remember the old play a piano, you know, where you wore your legs out on a Saturday night at the house party? Remember? Suppose you give us your impression yeah. of the pianola. Well, they always invited this bird over. Nobody ever put the rolls back in the right boxes. You know, you'd pull out Dardanella and Sweet Rosie O'Grady would come out on it. And, yeah, if you remember well enough, it sounded something like this. Got to set it at 80, if you remember. <laughs> If you enjoyed that golden age of radio production, be sure to follow the Riley and Kimmy show. We feature old time radio shows from time to time. We have archived episodes available right now on our website at RileyandKimmy.com. Some of them have old time radio episodes on them. Please tell your friends about the Riley and Kimmy show. Help us grow. Our social media links are available on our website at RileyandKimmy.com. That's R I L E Y. And Kimmy, K-I-M-M-Y, dot com. If you friend, follow, and like us, we will friend and follow you back. Also, be sure to check out our website, events page, and our social media pages for updates where the Riley and Kimmy show will be appearing next. And we're available for your pop culture event and also those that are animal-based, about pets and animals, too. We have a spinoff show called Animal Special. So be sure to tell your friends about us. It's the Riley and Kimmy Show, the nerd variety talk show with daily pop culture episodes. The Riley and Kimmy Show. Find archive podcasts of the Riley and Kimmy Show at RileyandKimmy.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.